Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. This is Molly. And I'm Kristen. Kristen, uh, one of the articles I wrote in my first year as a writer at HowStuffWorks.com was a little article about whether um, double dipping a chip uh, brought more disease into your body because you were somehow, you know, putting your germs into the salsa or the guacamole, whatever the dip happened to be. Uh huh. And then, um, you know, then taking another bite after someone else had double dipped the chip. Yeah, it's such a party faux pas. It is. And, you know, the first time I really thought about it as a party faux pas was when I saw the episode of Seinfeld mm-hmm. in which that very faux pas was sort of magnified as all faux pas are magnified on that show. And large awkward hands. <laughs> I didn't have to write about the large awkward hands yet, the man hands. <laughs> the man hands. But I do remember that episode very distinctly where, where George goes off on someone who uh, has double dipped the chip. Mm-hmm. And, he, you know, that was what was so funny. She kept going, you double dipped the chip, you double dipped the chip. <laughs> and what I found when I wrote the article is there was some truth to his phobias. Mm-hmm. You do get you do get a quite a percentage of germs if you if you double dip chips. So beware at your next party. Science according to Seinfeld. And Pay attention. That's our topic for today, because another notable Seinfeld episode, also involving George, as all the best episodes do, yes. um, is the question of whether celibacy makes you smarter. Yeah, there's an episode of Seinfeld. A lot of you all out there have probably seen it, where uh, the, the, the gang has a contest to see who can remain celibate the longest. And... It has very different results for the different characters. For George, it just turns him into this like superhuman, essentially. Yeah, he just walks down the street and throws off like physics <laughs> yeah. formulas he didn't even realize he knew. Suddenly he's brilliant. And for Elaine, it's horrible. She can't do it. She can't handle it very she well. She becomes just a, a drooling mess <laughs> yeah. who cannot function in society. So we wanted to, as Kristen said, find out the science behind Seinfeld. Right, because Molly, you and I have been talking a lot about doing it on mom stuff lately. So I think you mean we've been talking about issues related to sex. Yes. Yeah. We decided to see what would what would happen if we talked about the opposite of sex. Yeah. We're always like, what about how about condoms and penis sizes and birth control? Hey, why don't we just do away with all of that? All right. Let's simplify things and just talk about celibacy. And, you know, the word celibacy technically means unmarried. Uh, It just means a bachelor. Mm-hmm. But in our current vernacular, it's um, equivalent with not having sex. Yeah. And of course, a lot of times when we talk about celibacy, first thing that pops into our heads is probably the priesthood. Catholic Church. Yes. There's been a lot of new there a lot of discussion lately about if we abolish celibacy in the priesthood, would there be fewer cases of molestation? Mm-hmm. Is, you know, the repression of, of sexual desires in priests leading to these awful crimes against children? And, you know, that's that's a topic for another Another episode. Yeah, we're going to leave. We're going to leave the whole priesthood and celibacy kind of out of this conversation. But the important reason to bring it up is because there has always been this association between uh, abstaining from sex and the divine. Mm -hmm. And that's one reason why people may choose not to have sex today is because they feel there are religious reasons not to do it, moral reasons. But, um, you know, the idea of celibacy in priests didn't originally start because they wanted the priest to be you know, so very pure as they served the church. It was actually to keep the priests from uh, giving away church lands to their wives and children. Exactly. When they died. So it's sort of something that's evolved over over the age. But there 
you know, from from the time there were the earliest martyrs in the Christian church, many of them would abstain from sex, but they'd abstain from food. They'd abstain from beverage because they were trying to be the purest possible vessel Mm -hmm. for a communion and divine with with their God. And while there have always been these religious undertones linked to celibacy, today there's been a media trend of the new celibacy, if you will. This idea of people reclaiming their virginity, of being very open about abstaining from sex on purpose, you know, to try to better themselves, not necessarily for religious purposes. For instance, there was um, a story that we found on CNN that came out not too long ago about how supposedly more college students and especially female college students are choosing to abstain from the hookup culture that has uh, kind of permeated the college dating world, you know, in which two people are just, you know, they go out and they get drunk and they friends with benefits, friends with benefits or strangers with benefits and sometimes not benefits. Listen to our (laughs) condom episode. Um, but at the same time, in a lot of these, in a lot of these studies, especially the ones dealing with celibacy among younger people, they'll throw out these studies to kind of support the idea saying that, well, you know, psychologically hooking up is, is bad for women in particular. So, you know, it, it kind of seems like it is advertising celibacy as a positive thing for your, for your mind and body. Well, I feel like those trend pieces really emphasize the emotional aspect that, like you said, Kristen, the studies have indicated that women get hurt psychologically from um, not having these long traditional romances. So um, it's, celibacy or this new celibacy is kind of painted as a reaction to that hookup culture where women can, can find sort of the emotional benefits of sex when they choose to have it. But what most of the pieces seem to emphasize is that these are people who have had sex and are now abstaining from it. It's right. not um, abstaining all the way until... You're married and then having sex. You know, they've seen they've seen the other side and decided that they're going to come back to this thing. And it was interesting just to read about all these emotional benefits because no one is bringing up the Costanza argument that it might make you smarter or dumber. Right. And uh, well, and and perhaps the reason for that is because, you know, with uh, just to kind of use the, the Seinfeld example, you know, focusing on George as a guy choosing to remain celibate, a lot of the stories that we hear about today, the reason why we're saying, you know, there are all these studies um, proclaiming emotional benefits for women who choose to to not hook up, even though those results are actually mixed when you look at the entire body of research. Um, But I think, Molly, um, you'd agree that a lot of uh, the, the celibacy angle and a lot of this question of, you know, whether or not you should or shouldn't have sex focuses specifically on women and this emotional aspect. It kind of just assumes that guys are by nature sexual and they mm-hmm. need to go out and, you know, kind of procreate, spread their seed. And it's just part of who they are as, as human animals. But for women, you know, it's, it's a lot more complicated, which I kind of, take a little bit of issue with. Well, that's the problem. I think we'll probably circle back to this many times during the podcast, but there's always going to be a problem when you link women and sex, because if you think of uh, like sex in the city and the backlash from that, people get mad when women have too much sex. And now the fact that a woman not having sex is news, I mean, you can't win. Yeah. You cannot be a woman and win in terms of whether you are having sex or not having it. Um, But I think that I was reading one New York Times trend piece about this phenomenon of, of women abstaining and joining purity groups that are popping up all over college campuses and mm-hmm. they aren't linked with any sort of 
religious background. Because like we said, that's always going to be a reason, but these people are deliberately trying to find benefits that aren't linked to religious arguments Mm -hmm. for doing this. And the woman in this one particular New York Times piece tried to paint her stance as a celibate as sort of a a different kind of feminism. Sure. Because when you think about um, second wave feminism and the way that it sort of said, you know, women own their bodies, women can have sex with their bodies the way men have sex with their bodies, and there should be no shame in that. She said that that's exactly what she's doing in the opposite way. By choosing not to have sex is just as valid a choice. It doesn't need that same amount of judgment. Um, but, you know, it's still a judgment because it, it ends up in the paper and people are shocked by it. And the thing is, it's actually statistically not um, that crazy of a notion to be celibate. According to the National Center for Health Statistics, 11% of never married adults um, choose to abstain from sexual intercourse. And that that statistic would indicate to me that that doesn't include people who just haven't lost their virginity for whatever reason, because that's kind of another issue that will bring up, um, you know, this idea of celibacy by choice and forced celibacy when you just you, you, you just can't get any. <laughs> but let's go to celibacy as a choice, because I think that if we look at sort of a cultural history of celibacy, we might be able to find um, some reasoning behind that woman in the New York Times piece I mentioned saying that celibacy is a form of feminism mm-hmm. because uh, there's this great book called The History of Celibacy by Elizabeth Abbott. And to me, this really kind of put into perspective how celibacy has always been a form of power for men. And in this day and age, the George Costanzas of the world, he gets smarter, he gets uh-huh. better. And how uh, celibacy as power for women has never been emphasized, which I think is how they were allowed to paint Elaine as like this sniveling uh, dummy when she didn't didn't get any. Mm-hmm. And um, and the fascinating thing about the history of celibacy is just how far back in history people have been so concerned over the issue, not so much of having sex, you know, because they they understand that you got to do it to procreate. It's just kind of a natural byproduct of being a human. It's one of our biological urges, but it's more resisting that urge mm-hmm. and the effects of that. And what might happen to you that has kind of plagued mankind, humankind for a long time. This big, this big question of celibacy. Right. And of course, there were the religious overtones um, in the Bible. The fellow Onan, uh, Onan spills his seed and it's considered this great crime. So there's always mm-hmm. been, you know, that people think that that's where the priesthood celibacy stuff comes from, that Onan spilled his seed and now these men must carry their seed. Um, in Hinduism, there's also this emphasis on conserving semen and not letting, not letting it go to waste mm-hmm. with sex. Um, and of course we mentioned the martyrs who are always trying to find this divine, uh, communion with God. But if you, if you, if we separate the, 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 uh, religious aspects for a moment and look at the earliest medical thinkers, the big daddy of them all, Hippocrates. Hippocrates, yes. He considered sperm and semen to be um, one of the main humors of the body. Mm-hmm. And to have a, one of your humors out of balance was the whole reason that people got sick in the first place. So he uh, thought celibacy for men was a great thing because it was helping them keep uh, all their bodily fluids in balance. It was balancing your blood with your semen and your the water in your body. And it just it was it was something that was very tricky. And so this really had interesting repercussions for women. Because, it, you know, according to Abbott, every time a woman came to see Hippocrates feeling sick or depressed or whatever, he diagnosed her with wandering womb. 
And apparently, if she did not have enough uh, semen in her body to weigh down the womb and hydrate it, uh-huh. it would start to wander throughout her body, causing all sorts of damage. So whenever a woman came, that the book said that was his main uh, examination of a woman was to, to see if her womb was wandering. But it's but it's interesting, too, because Hippocrates wouldn't say, you know, go and um, have intercourse with with one man, get your get, get, get your your humors balanced, because if she were to only have sex with one guy, that would deplete his humor and throw his his humor levels out of whack, too. So essentially, Hippocrates prescribed promiscuity to women, you know, to to make sure that their their wombs weren't wandering all over the place, causing yeah. all sorts of trouble. The women needed to be uh, needed to have sex and uh, and have children. But he could never reconcile with the fact that celibacy for men was good. So uh-huh. it was, you know, don't don't take too much from one guy because <laughs> yeah. he needs it. You know, you need it, too. But. But please don't deplete the men. Now, Hippocrates' successor is a guy named Galen. And he thinks that too much sperm can make you unhealthy, too little can make you unhealthy. Mm -hmm. So he kind of advocates sex the same way a doctor might advocate, like a healthy diet or an exercise plan, just in moderation. Yeah. Do not, do not overdo it. If you're going to eat that piece of cake, do not eat the whole pie. I mean, well, there's something to be said for that. Maybe, maybe Galen was, was onto something. You know, I, I think that makes sense, but you know, it led to all these, uh, conversations of how much is too much. Uh huh. Particularly in the middle of the night, Kristen. Oh, yes, Molly. I think you're referring to, uh, wet dreams. You know, your body sometimes cannot help but emit, uh, some semen. And this would throw the doctors off because they were like, whoa, 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 gotta preserve this. How yeah. much of this is safe? Right. And, uh, according to the, to Elizabeth Abbott, they consulted with the monks who had decided to live in celibacy anyway, and, and they asked, how much of this is normal? Like, how much of can we get by with without... <laughs> how many wet dreams are are allowed? Yes, depleting the body. And the monks came back and said, two to three times a month, hmm. you can have a wet dream because, you know, we we live in the strictest, uh, you know, strictest way we can to please God, and, and God seems to be okay with two to three a month. Now, fast forwarding to the Victorian era, not surprisingly, this idea of celibacy and particularly male celibacy really uh, comes back. There's a huge resurgence in the 1830s for this male purity movement. Mm-hmm. And this is also why we have uh, yummy snacks like graham crackers and cornflakes, because the idea behind graham crackers and cornflakes during the Victorian era was that they were they were bland foods that were designed specifically to not stimulate your your taste buds, not get your um, senses too excited, and then possibly as a byproduct uh, become sexually aroused as well. Because, because, I mean, one graham cracker, okay, but goodness knows a s'more. <laughs> you, you eat some s'mores and you might be... Whew. You can't account for what would happen. Yeah, you might go on a rampage. And, you know, in this this purity movement that was aimed strictly at males, and interestingly, it's the only purity movement that has been aimed only at males without addressing females as well. Um, because the thought at that time was the women, you know, were so overcome by the the moods and sways of ovulation, you just couldn't control them. Mm-hmm. The men had to take it all upon themselves. The idea came into being that men had a limited uh, quant- limited amount of, of semen. Just mm-hmm. like women are born with all the eggs they'll ever have in their life, mm-hmm. the thought became popular that men are born with all the semen they'll ever have in their life. And if it really is this vital fluid that keeps you healthy and keeps you strong, wasting it on sex 
seemed really problematic to these people. Um, and this is where we get the idea of athletes abstaining from sex to conserve sperm, writers conserving um, their sperm by abstaining so they can write the great American novel. The the writer Balzac had this great quote after he had had sex. There goes another novel. <laughs> yeah. And a fun fact about Muhammad Ali, he used to abstain from sex for six weeks before a big fight. And other boxers found out about this and they were like, hey, we should we should do that, too. And he said it was because it makes you angry. Yeah, yeah. It would build up kind of all of this, uh, all this rage. And there have been certain soccer teams mm-hmm. as well where there's been a team policy before, say, the World Cup or some kind of big tournament where the team members are not allowed to sleep with, with people. Um, and maybe, yeah, to build up that internal <laughs> fire and rage. So it just continues throughout history. And that's, I think, how they can get away making this George Costanza argument that sex has an effect. But throughout history, you don't see the Elaine Bennis argument of sex making you smarter or dumber because, you know, there is this cultural history, but th- there is no study to back up the fact that sex makes you smarter. Like, that's, yeah, that's should, the answer should, to the question. <laughs> we should be honest and say there is no empirical data to back up what we uh, what we said, which I, I found really surprising. I was yeah. expecting to find, considering all of the crazy studies, Molly, that you and I <laughs> run across, you know, that, that actually pertain to a lot of these kind of strange topics that we'll cover, uh, celibacy, no, no one's, no one's studying it. If it's but, out there, we couldn't find it. But going back to women in history, though, I do think that we need to point out, um, you know, some examples that Elizabeth Abbott does bring up in the history of celibacy. For instance, if we go back to, say, the Vestal Virgins, they came from upper, upper middle class Roman families, and they were given um, all of this power and responsibility, this kind of very sacred space in society in exchange for preserving their virginity. But the interesting thing is, even though uh, they were they were women and there was this power associated with their celibacy, they were given the rights of men. That was the big payoff for them was that they were treated with the same respect as men in society. So even though it's a group of women who are being celibate, it's still perceived kind of through the male lens, if that makes sense. I completely agree, Kristen, because the three examples I've got next of women in history who have been celibate, the whole reason they seem to get away with it is because they're in masculine roles. Mm -hmm. We don't have, we have very few examples of women in history who can maintain their femininity and still be celibate because the ideal of femininity becomes bearing children. So the examples I've got of women who were historically celibate are Joan of Arc, Elizabeth I, and Florence Nightingale, all women who rejected traditional gender roles to take on sort of these male um, spheres. Obviously, Joan of Arc becomes a warrior. And she she basically said, like, look, I am pure because I'm on a mission from God. You can you can see the proof of my divine mission by seeing that I am a virgin. And uh, she basically said, you know, if I am if I am sexually active, I can't lead all these men mm-hmm. because they won't respect me and because they'll always be after me. So. There are actually accounts of the time of how the men just stopped being sexually attracted to Joan of Arc because she was living as this male. Yeah. Elizabeth, same case, virgin queen. What do we associate with her is her virginity. And uh, Abbott sort of postulates that she saw she saw a lot of drama in Henry VIII's time, saw the, the punishments of entering into sexual unions. And because she wanted to keep her head and also keep her empire... She uh, abstained from marriage and sex so that no no one would be able to devalue that power. Mm-hmm. So it is associated with maintaining male power throughout history. 
So do you think, though, that maybe today um, with uh, with feminism and with gender equality and all of that, this idea of the new celibacy, we can uh, maybe have the best of both worlds. If someone, you know, if a woman chooses to abstain from sex, if there is maybe a new form, a more modern form of power that she can grasp? I think that's what what I've come to the conclusion of, and it's just not being articulated in the articles about celibacy, because like we said, all the articles deal with um, how these women are protecting their hearts and their emotions. protecting their fragile emotions, yeah. But, you know, I don't think that that's the reason why women don't have sex. I mean, that's the reason why some people don't have sex. Sure. But I think that um, throughout history, there's never been this idea that a woman can abstain from sex and be a stronger woman because of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but no matter what, even though, like we said, there were, there's, there aren't any studies saying, you know, yes or no, celibacy is, is good or bad for you. No matter what, throughout history, there has been constantly this, this attachment to power mm-hmm. and celibacy. Um, and, uh, and I think that that still resonates today. And I would argue that perhaps today there might be even more power that you can um, grasp through celibacy because we do live in a more sexually open society where we talk about sex more, you know, uh, people are more open about having sex outside of marriage. Um, and, uh, and so maybe it's, it's an even more radical choice today to abstain from sex than it would have been, you know, 50 years ago, a hundred, a hundred years ago, especially because, you know, when you look at data about, um, celibacy and how long people actually go, for instance, there was a recent study on, uh, female college students who chose to kind of go through periods of celibacy more for health reasons than anything else. And the average amount of time that they would stop having sex was only 31 days, you know, that's, which really isn't, it really isn't that long, which I think, you know, um, kind of indicates that, that, yeah, it's a it's a pretty conscious decision that you do have to make. Unless you are one of the people who we found in one study from Georgia State University about unintentional celibacy, which is kind of the flip side of the coin to where, uh, you know, if it's involuntary, if you, you know, if, if you're a person who maybe wants to have sex like you're, you know, you're the Steve Carell character and 40 year old virgin, um it's not powerful at all. They feel um, very removed from society. Yeah, they feel uh, we found a study that was put out by researchers at Georgia State University. And the uh, phrase they kept using was off time mm-hmm. that, you know, because our because you see so many movies about sex and its placement within one's lifespan, you come to think that there's this schedule by which you must have had sex and you must have gotten yeah. married and you must have had your kids and these people who feel that they're behind uh, get really emotionally depressed about it because, you know, they just they feel they've been passed by. And that's something that did come up in that movie about how, you know, he he eventually stopped trying because he just figured, you know, the time had gone. Yeah. But um, but I think that that's what can be so dangerous about discussions of sex and celibacy in the popular media is there really isn't this right time to do any of that. Exactly. And, um, you know, whether you decide to be celibate until the time you're 30 and then all of a sudden you do meet the love of your life and it all works out for the best or whether you go through some time where you start experimenting with sex very early, decide that's too early and then uh, abstain from sex until another point in your life when you're ready to do it again. I think all of those are such valid choices that the conscious that the constant uh, discussion about sex and when you should be having it in the media 
can really feel make these people feel their choices are wrong when in fact they're not. Right. So really when we're talking about the consequences, if you will, of choosing celibacy or choosing to have sex, the the science kind of comes up in a wash, you know? There's no yeah. there's no study proving that celibacy will make you smarter or celibacy will, you know, make you win a boxing match or whatever. And it won't turn you into Elaine Venice who can't who walks down the street. My favorite scene is when she's just looking in a window and she just starts clapping cuz it's just the most magical thing she's ever seen. <laughs> yeah, it's not going to it's not going to make it, you That's not going to happen. But and on the on the flip side of that too, science also doesn't say, you know, if you are choosing to have a lot of sex if you are you know all for the hookup culture that you are just you're being making poor choices for your body and for your for your mind too you know what i mean it's mm-hmm. it, it all like we said you can't win right so just make your choice yeah and live with it yeah and stop judging everyone else and stop judging yes yeah, celibates stop judging the promiscuous the promiscuous stop judging the celibates can we all just get along you know out, outside of the bedroom can we just you know <laughs> accept each other's choices exactly so that's 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 what we've come up with after researching celibacy yeah <laughs> we want to know what you thought about it yeah the the right answer is there is no right answer so we would love to hear your thoughts on this episode. The email address is momstuff at howstuffworks.com. And I think we have time for a little listener mail. Sure. Well, I've got one here from Maddie, and this is in response to our episode on gender stereotyped instruments entitled, Why Don't Boys Play the Harp? She says, I was surprised that you didn't mention the piano. I'm a teenage girl and I play the piano. However, I know many boys that play the piano as well. Along with the saxophone, I think the piano isn't really gendered stereotyped. There are many famous piano players of both sexes, such as Carol King, Elton John, Carly Simon, Alicia Keys, Billy Joel, Freddie Mercury, and Stevie Wonder. Just wanted to share my opinion with you. And that is a really good point. We really didn't talk about the piano at all. We also didn't mention many stringed instruments, which has... Our orchestra listeners a little, a little sad, a little miffed. We're gonna get to everyone. Yeah, we're a little heavy on this on the saxophone, I guess. <laughs> we love talking about horns. Get a G. <laughs> Speaking of um, instruments in that family, we have an email from Debbie who talks about how the band director in 1975, when she started band class, assigned her to play the clarinet, even though she desperately wanted to play the drums, but her parents were relieved. And um, she talks about how, you know, what other instruments her family plays. But the thing that I loved was we talked about how you've got to get uh, male flutes more prominent, you know? Mm-hmm. you got to break the stereotype that flutes are only for girls. So she writes, when you spoke of the flute being a more female instrument, I immediately thought of Ian Anderson of Jethro Tull. He really rocked that flute. So there you go. A male, a male flautist. Yes. They'll flout us everywhere. We love them. So if you would like to get in touch with me and Molly, you, there's so many ways. You can send us an email at momstuff at howstuffworks.com. If you're on Facebook, you can just head over to our Facebook fan page, write something on our wall. We love it when people write on our wall. Uh, and then finally, you can follow us on Twitter. Tweet us up. We're at momstuff podcast. And then finally, you can read our blog during the week. It's Stuff Mom Never Told You, and you can find it at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Want more How Stuff Works? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. 
brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?